Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We're excited to welcome Professor Jerry Mann today. But first, we check in on current hot topics in healthcare. And I know you have several items to talk about today, Harlan. Hit it. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, thanks, Howie. I thought that folks might be interested in things that are going on in the gene editing world. So what, what the heck is gene editing? People may have heard about this term CRISPR, you know, where there was this breakthrough where all of a sudden we were able to go into the genome, you know, the, the inherited blueprint we have, and actually make edits, changes. You know, we always thought that this was sort of we're stuck with what we inherited, but but it turns out that we can actually make these kind of changes. And uh, folks also may have heard that uh, just recently regulators in the UK approved the very first CRISPR-based medicine that's going to be available to treat sickle cell disease right. and beta thalassemia. In, in June, we sort of heard a lot of updated results from some trials about lasting benefits of these kind of treatments. UK has jumped ahead of United States and, and, and Europe in saying, you know, we're going to move forward with, with this uh, really the world's first CRISPR treatment. It's, it's more than just treatment, though, right? I mean, presumably in the future, this is curative. Okay, so exactly. I mean, it's, you know, for, for those listening, these are inherited conditions, sickle cell and, and beta thalassemia. They represent a defect in hemoglobin synthesis and gene, and they're going to go in and fix it. And, you know, this is authorized for patients who are at least 12 years old. And, you know, there's so much harm that's that's been caused by these mutations and, and so much uh, suffering. And, uh, you know, this seems like it's going to make a big difference and can be a really long-term fix for these uh, these sort of genetic problems that really are at the root of the problem for these diseases. Now, the, the FDA is set to, to rule on these in uh, early December and uh, in March for thalassemia. And, and so we're likely to see this also come into the U.S., but, you know, this is incredibly rapid science. I mean, from the time that maybe like a little more than a decade ago that, that these papers come out about this. By the way, Papers didn't even, weren't even covered. It wasn't like front page of the New York Times. It was kind of like a minor thing. They found a, you know, an enzyme, a way to snip this out and replace it in the DNA. And it seemed like it was sort of an esoteric finding. Ends up becoming incredibly important. It wins Nobel Prize. And, uh, and, and now we're already at the cusp of an approved drug just to show like the, the speed that this is happening. Well, I, I was also just going to bring up this, this uh, report that occurred at the American Heart Association just a couple of weeks ago, we've talked now before about the SELECT trial that, that talked about the GLP-1 receptor agonist and the reduction. Well, there, there were a lot of good other good science also at the American Heart Meetings. And one of them was a study that came out of a, a company called Verve, which was started by a scientist who was at Harvard, Katrasian, who spun out a company that instead of focusing on rare diseases, was going to focus on very a much more common condition. Familial hypercholesterolemia, it's still a, a little bit rare, but, but you know, many people have this where their, their bad cholesterol, that LDL cholesterol is, is off the charts. And these people have accelerated atherosclerosis. They get a lot of heart disease, many shortens their lives. And, and the advent of the drugs to treat elevated cholesterol have been a boon to this group, but they still often uh, have elevated levels, hard to control, and they're taking a lot of meds. And the question was, could you go in and edit their genome and actually cure them of the condition? So this was the first in human study. They presented 10 patients, uh, mean age about 54, eight men, 
to women from the UK and New Zealand. All of them had this and uh, all of them had elevated cholesterol and many of them had pre-existing severe coronary disease. And, you know, they, they presented this result that by giving them this treatment, they were able to markedly reduce their cholesterol levels. I mean, it worked. There was some question here about safety, and, and there were a couple of events, adverse events in the groups. It seemed like they probably were unrelated to the drug because of the timing of them and the way it worked. We'll have to sort this out. But but the big news to me was that, you know, like if you think of it like Kitty Hawk, the, the plane flew. I mean, they gave these people the medications. They they This is gene therapy for cholesterol. And the presumption is if you do it, then you'll never, they won't have to take these meds the rest of the life. Anyway, it's very And the effect did seem durable, it seems, so which, which is based on the premise that this sticks. Yeah, and, you know, there will have to be much longer-term outcome. I, I just, so anyway, this is one of the things, and I, I'll just jump in on one other thing because I think it's also very interesting, is that there was yet another study coming out saying that we should really be, be treating people to much lower uh, blood pressure levels. You know, I'm a big advocate of this. There, there now have been four a, a large trials that have come in and said that, you know, it's not the 140 over 90 level. We should really be looking at, at 130. This this trial that just came out at the American Heart was really trying to get people uh, below 120. And uh, again, marked benefits of lower blood pressure. And I'm going to just pair that study uh, with another one that came out that was looking at a, a subcutaneous injectable for for treating hypertension. So again, there's also innovation occurring in the treatment side such that uh, it's not about people taking pills, but people can now take, we'll, we'll be able to take injections and, and we're looking at whether that's a better way to do it. Some people think eventually. And importantly, an injection every six months, like not an injection every day or every week, but every six months, right? Right, exactly. So everyone thinking that like twice a year, I can go into the doctor, I'll get a shot. Yeah. And then that'll take care of the issues around remembering to take yeah. your pills and all Compliance. that stuff. So anyway, a lot of innovation going on. I thought there was a lot of other good science there besides that around the treatment of obesity and, and things that are getting me excited anyway recently. That's great stuff. Good. Hey, let's get on to our interview with Jerry. Professor Jerry Mand is the CEO and the founder of Nourish Science, a non-governmental organization working to create a more sustainable and equitable food system that promotes optimal health before bringing his political and policy acumen to bear to solve the current U.S. nutrition crisis with Nourish Science, Professor Mann served in senior policymaking positions for three presidential administrations at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Food and Drug Administration, and OSHA. Notably, Professor Mann served as senior advisor to the Undersecretary of the USDA's Food, Nutrition, and consumer services during the Obama administration and led the redesign of the nutrition facts label during the Bush administration. In addition to his governmental work, he has held appointments at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy, the Yale School of Medicine, and the Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He holds a B.S. in nutritional science from the University of Connecticut and an M.P.H. from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So first, just welcoming you to the podcast. It's obviously a really timely visit. Um, And I don't think I know of anybody who has followed their interest in 
a theme for their entire career, as specifically as you have, doing nutrition science as an undergrad and really sticking to it your entire career, advising uh, Senator Gore when he served in the Senate and continuing your service through that. But my first question, because we had Dawn Sherling on several months ago to talk about her feelings about ultra-processed food. We've obviously talked about uh, anti-obesity drugs and anti-obesity surgery. Can you just tell us two or three ingredients that worry you the most and for which we don't have a sufficient information right now or, or anything along those lines about why we need to do better and more science? First point I'd make is just how sick we are as a country because of our food, um, which is really extraordinary. I think people somehow know that there, you know, there's a problem here, but I don't think people really understand just how serious it is. And indeed, there's been uh, recent reporting in the Washington Post highlighting uh, a phenomenon that we've seen over the last couple of years that Americans are living a shorter lifespan, sicker lives than before, actually lower than any other uh, developed country right now. But what the Post found is it is chronic illness caused by our food, particularly uh, obesity that's uh, driving it. So I think that's the first thing. And related to that, and part of that is how sick our kids are. And so as as you all know, as it, it being uh, physicians, um, you know, it used to be adult onset diabetes. Uh, today, it's uh, type two because it's become so common in children. As part of the Washington Post reporting, they did a whole story on fatty liver disease in kids, something that's just even more unthinkable than type two diabetes. And then the New York Times had a magazine section on bariatric surgery, something you were talking about last week, in teenagers. This is something that should have everyone's uh, attention, not because of how sick we are, not because how relevant this sickness is. COVID, right? Two-thirds of COVID hospitalizations and maybe 800,000 deaths were not due to COVID alone, but to obesity, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes caused by our food. Um, and, and I'm talking just the health and suffering. There's the, there's the economic costs, which are extraordinary. Met so much medical debt is due to the, uh, our poor diets. And then even military readiness, uh, 800 former admirals and generals, mission readiness. The number one issue and threat to our military is childhood obesity. You know, I was wondering, Jerry, whether some of this is also contributing to to mark disparities. I mean, I, I think back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there was a lot about food, you know, that that uh, I think was contributing to poor health uh, writ large, you know, of, of the way people were eating and so forth. But then there's been a divergence where people of means can have access to, you know, fresh vegetables and healthy foods and are moving in a direction towards uh, healthier diets. But then largely, you know, it, there are food deserts or, or, you know, the highly processed food is cheaper, easier uh, to access and you know, more affordable for many families. And so uh, I just wonder your thoughts about wh whether this is also contributing to the fact that, you know, you've kind of got this one group who are eating very healthy, paying a lot of attention, but it's costing them more. You go to Whole Foods, you can't even afford, not that they just only have healthy food, but, it, it, you know, many of the kind of places people are going, uh, you know, to maintain a vegetarian diet can be more expensive. And, uh, then it can be for alternatives, depending on what your access to food is. So what, what are your thoughts about that with regard to, are we really reaching the populations that need 
healthy food? I mean, are, are we making it accessible and affordable? But those are great points. And, and two in particular, I'll highlight. First, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, poverty overall, but even more than that, um, is, is a big factor here. And, um, you know, it's, it's not just also the cost of the, the food. Indeed, when we were at USDA, you know, you, people often say that produce is going to cost more. Um, those were earlier studies before I was at USDA, which were studies on the cost of food per, you know, per 100 calories. So when you look at food per 100 calories, uh, produce was one of the most expensive uh, foods um, and McDonald's was one of the cheapest. But when you look at it at volume, which is how our stomachs are filled, produce in season is um, actually one of the cheapest uh, foods. Um, but something, so it is cost, but not in the way you were saying, it's time as cost. And so when you buy that produce, then you need to make it into a, a meal. And, and, and there is where the problem really lies in that for people of uh, middle income, even certainly people of low income, the time necessary uh, to prepare a meal from healthier food is considerable. And that raises the other really important point you made, uh, ultra processed food. And going back to a point that Howie made earlier, the additives may play a really key role. Not in the sense that recently when we banned certain additives of fear that it might cause cancer, not, not that. It's that companies are designing food uh, to be overeaten, and that's really at the root of our obesity epidemic. So, so that's where I really, I'm still curious to know, are there specific ingredients, you know, to just use examples, Harlan and I talked about erythritol, uh, a few months ago. Uh, there are other sugar alcohols that people have been concerned about. There are other emulsifiers that Dawn Sherling talked about. I'm curious from you, since you're so uh, you know, steeped in this area, you understand this area, are there specific ingredients that our listeners should care about when they look at a package? Or is it just the fact about how it's made that gives you the greatest concern? I think it's how it's made gives me the greatest concern than any one chemical. Um, you know, I, I got interested in this whole field uh, back when I was a, a student when FDA banned essentially red M&Ms by banning red dye number two because of the risk of uh, cancer. Right. And even then, what struck yeah. me about that is I read some about it and it's unclear whether someone ever got cancer in the U.S. due to red M&M or red dye number two. But yet, even then, maybe a third of cancer deaths have been associated with our diet. So there seems to be a, a mismatch. And it goes back to this sort of nutritionalism um, mindset, this sort of reductionist approach where people look at things. I get it. Scientists, we've all trained that way. You know, what is it that we reduce down? I just think we haven't done enough of the science and nutrition to figure out what it reduces to. Um, you know, there, there are tens of thousands of compounds in food. Um, there are 100 or 200 that we understand that we know, think of as nutrients, but all of those are probably right. important, all of the 10,000 plus chemicals. And we just don't study it to understand it. And just to be clear, be, be clear what an ultra processed food. Well, is. it is. It's it's difficult because um, we're, we're using their definition where they say you know it, the easiest way to think about it is if there's a, a you pick up the package and there's a list of ingredients you don't really recognize. Or another way is this is just something you couldn't prepare in your kitchen. Um, it, but but I think the way to think about it are, are these are foods that are designed by food companies, but they're designed using a lot of processing and additives that are designed so the food is overeaten. I think that is the most important point. So, you know, more than, I think probably close to 15 years ago in that range, our former Dean, David Kessler, former FDA commissioner wrote a book 
about why we overeat and how you can stop overeating. And in some ways it was targeted at the audience trying to get them to change their behavior. But there was this also underlying premise, if I recall correctly, about how food companies, it's not necessarily emulsifiers or specific ingredients, but salt and high fructose corn syrup alone contribute so much to our natural insatiable appetite. Like we pick up a bag of chips and we just can't stop eating. We pick up a sweet candy bar and we have too many and Oreos and so on. And everybody has their favorite vice in that way. What can we do on a population health, on a public health basis to start to impact that we shouldn't be able to accept or be complacent about where we are? What can we do? This is what food companies are taking advantage of and what their science is focused on. So it's, it's the, the, the craving that's there for these foods that affects most people because of the way our brains are. And you're absolutely right. And one of the leading ingredients they use is, in that respect is sweetness. And I'm using the word sweetness is important because when companies switch from added sugars to non-nutritive sweeteners, they're still pushing that sweetener button in, in the brain that's wired in for 150,000 years in terms of getting, you know, the energy we uh, need. Um, and, and they're abusing it. It's, it's okay to have it there, but not the way they're using it that drives people to crave the, the foods. You're, the, the other question, of course, what, what can we do about it? We have a plan. Uh, the first thing is the government needs to update its um, strategy and its mission in this space. Um, it's been just making sure there are healthy options or there's education or information. The, the child obesity problem is so severe in our country at the moment. We should set a goal for our country to ensure that every child reaches the age 18 at a healthy weight and in good metabolic health. Now, the good news is we've demonstrated already we have the tools where we could make the kind of progress on child obesity we made with childhood smoking. As you both know, and you mentioned uh, the former uh, dean, David Kessler, he, when he was at FDA, we, we took on uh, smoking and tobacco and kids. At the time, 25% of high school um, seniors uh, smoke. The latest data is just out. It's less than 2% today. We need to make a similar, serious, uh, concerted effort around childhood obesity, and we can do that. One, one thing I wanted to bring up, uh, Jerry, while we have you is, you know, people may not uh, know just what a key role you played in the FDA labeling of food. And uh, I, I remember you telling me about this, both getting it done and the design of the label and making it readable and understandable to to average lay folks who may not have been sophisticated about these kind of labels. And, and I think that was a tremendous contribution. But one of the disappointments to me is the lack of evidence that that this labeling, which I think is important, has actually made an impact. And, and so I just wonder how you reconcile what I thought was an, a tremendous educational public health initiative, which is to educate us about the food we're eating, but the disconnect between, you know, maybe it's impact on, on how people eat. Maybe it's just because of the neuromarketing. It's hard to overcome all these other factors that you're describing. But what, what would it be that would be required for this kind of information to actually help people make wiser choices. Well, I share very acutely both those feelings you uh, described, Harlan. It, it is. It's the thing. It's the, the project I worked on. I'm maybe most proud and having been able to design that label that's so ubiquitous. But then I've stayed on it and 
looked at the data and I agree with you, it hasn't had the impact we thought it would have. The key to the design is that it would not just nudge consumers to make healthier choice, but it's really power. You know, who reads 100% of who reads the label? Maybe, you know, half of consumers at best, the companies whose product you put the label on, 100% of them read the label. And so the hope of a label is to nudge them to redesign their products. What's happened, what we didn't expect is that this ultra processing I'm talking about, what I'll call sort of this bag of tricks that companies have with additives and processing, we thought, well, gee, you know, we'd put information on the label about fat and, you know, they would put healthier oils or something in, or we put added sugars and they would stop putting in the added sugars. Well, to an extent, but what we missed is, well, what do they replace it with? And, and this is where the FDA has failed uh, dramatically. Um, FDA was created more than 100 years ago by Harvey Wiley, a, a chemist at USDA at the time. He was just worried that processed food was making us sick. It, it was a new industry. People were first eating it. And processed food companies were relying on chemical companies to help them figure out how to make products that tasted good, were uh, affordable, convenient. And it turned out that that was chemicals in those foods we're making people sick. Well, you fast forward today. Back then, it was one of the 10 leading causes of death. Today, it's number one. And yet the FDA is doing absolutely nothing about it. And let me say what that means. The FDA you know, is, has a billion-dollar food budget. Um, they're spending every penny of that on making sure that um, E. coli, salmonella, don't make us sick. We need to do that. There are 1,400 deaths a year that FDA and USDA are trying to prevent. We need to prevent every one of them, especially in infants, just a horrible, horrible illness. But there are more deaths than that every day from these chronic food illnesses that our companies are causing as well. And the agency is spending nothing and doing nothing about it. The only thing it has in place is, as you said, is this label we developed. Here's the problem and here's what FDA needs to do. Labeling can be part of it, but companies, the agency has to say, well, when companies change the design of the food, how are they redesigning it? And is the redesign better than what it was before? And what the history has shown is the redesign is not better and has even been worse in some cases. And so the agency needs to set guardrails for companies around the design of these ultra processed foods use its authority. Good news is we don't need a new law. The Harvey Wiley statute says our food can't make us sick. And so the agency has all the authority it needs. The standard in the statute is maybe injurious to health. That is the standard that all of these additives need to pass. And they're clearly injurious to health. All of the sickness that you see as a cardiologist, cancer patients, a third cancer patient. This is being caused by our food. The agency has the authority, as does the USDA. They need to start regulating it so that when companies, then the label sort of encourages them to reformulate, we can be assured the reformulation results in a healthier product. So we're, we're on the cusp of Thanksgiving and we're going to, this is our Thanksgiving episode. It's sort of a, a day when people do uh, indulge. Uh, what's your favorite Thanksgiving food. What are you looking forward to? Man, the, the whole meal. And, and it, it, it isn't in time uh, where food is at the center. And I think this is also, you know, a, a point I want to make, which is the most important thing about food is it should be delicious. So um, people should think about it that way. The, the, the problem isn't that food is too delicious. It's that, um, in fact, I, pretty much if you're cooking your Thanksgiving dinner yourself, I think you're fine. Um, I, I think the, the thing you need to worry about is all of these highly processed foods that companies are designed to be overeaten. And well, one final question here at the end, just because I think people might be interested, since you're such an expert in this area, what, what's your diet? Um, 
I do eat a, a diet that I think um, um, everyone should tr eat. It's uh, you know, first again the most important thing in, in my diet is delicious, and and so that comes up first. <laughs> uh, but my diet is you know what people have described it. I say sort of a pescatarian Mediterranean diet. Um, there's you know I don't I do eat meat occasionally, um, but I eat uh, mostly a plant based uh, diet. When I was at, uh, you mentioned the food label, which I was proud to do at FDA. When I was at USDA, we did the the my plate that I helped oversee as uh, well and developed uh, that. And I, I remember Tom Vilsack, who was the secretary, you know, he had agreed with us at this pyramid that maybe your listeners don't even remember anymore was really confusing. He had no idea what it meant. And, um, and, and so we talked about, well, we could redesign that, you know, he's secretary, we could come up with a new you know, icon for the dietary guidelines. And we came up with my plate and uh, this is radio or podcast. So it's hard for people to visualize if they haven't, they should look it up. Uh, but when we showed it to Vilsack, it, he got it right away. Is is this remarkable? My plate looks nothing like that. And, 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 and the plate is for those who don't know it. And when they look it up, it's half your plate is fruits and vegetables. And the protein is really a side dish. It's not the, the main dish if you're eating um, mm -hmm. particularly an animal based uh, protein. And, you know, the grains need to be whole grains. So, so will you have Turk? Will you have turkey on Thanksgiving? Absolutely. Yeah. No, turkey's great. Well, look, we want to wish you and everyone in your family uh, a very happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for joining us this week on the podcast. And I, I certainly hope that your what you're saying and what you're pushing for is heard by both uh, our government as well as our listeners and others. Yeah. What a great episode. Um, much love to you and Elizabeth and the boys and uh, have a great holiday. And it's great to see you, Jerry. Yeah, well, thank you all so much for uh, this opportunity. It's, it was a delight to to spend time with you again and 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 talk about a public health, my um, uh, the most important issue, my great passion. Hey, that was terrific. Uh, you know, uh, Jerry's a good friend of ours, and uh, it was fun. Tons of knowledge about nutrition and uh, really interesting. But anyway, Howie, uh, we're on the cusp of Thanksgiving. Any thoughts for this week? Yeah, so, you know, we, we lost First Lady uh, Rosalind Carter this week at the age of 96, 77 years, married to President Jimmy Carter. And she was a trailblazer and by all accounts, an amazing woman, mother, wife, leader. And most people know that she did devote much of her professional efforts to advancing mental health and well-being starting in the early 1970s when her husband was governor of Georgia. And I remember sitting just a few feet from her in the Senate dining room about 20 years ago, along with... Mike Wallace of CBS fame and others in support of mental health parity legislation that took Congress too long to pass and still has not accomplished all that it can do. And I just have enormous admiration for, for Mrs. Carter and so many others who have sought to elevate our discourse and destigmatize a group of diseases that are so very prevalent in our midst and that we have returned to on this podcast numerous times. And so you may say like, you know, you asked me any thoughts on Thanksgiving. So you know, you may think this is a non sequitur, but it's not. The holidays are a time of great joy and happiness. Uh, is also a spike in depression and related ailments. And I want to encourage our listeners to do good for others while they do good for themselves. There is enormous evidence that altruism or other regarding behaviors, as you might describe it, delivers physical and mental benefits to the altruist. They live longer and healthier lives. Simple acts of kindness can bring benefits to you and to those you help. Give thanks, help your neighbor, offer friendship or a simple visit to someone who's alone, or do an organized community service activity. Do it for others, do it for you. 
On this Thanksgiving, I want to offer my sincere thanks this holiday season to my parents, my daughters, the rest of my family, and all the friends that I love and appreciate. And to you, Harlan, a friend, collaborator, mentor, role model for 28 years, I want to just thank you so much for all of that and for this podcast. And thanks to our amazing listeners. I can't thank them enough for their advice, their feedback, their suggestions, and their support. Well, I don't think I can I can match that eloquence, uh, Howie. You know, I'm extraordinarily grateful to you. And it is a time, I think, for us to be able to sit back and and reflect on how uh, the things that make us fortunate, how fortunate many of us are. And and it really is in those relationships that we, we can make, relationships with our family, our friends, our colleagues, you know, that it both enrich life, but but increasingly the evidence is that it helps us live healthier lives yeah. as well and, and and certainly more meaningful lives. And your words are, I think, so important, well taken and uh, and, and appreciated. Um, thanks to Miranda Schaefer, Inez Gio, Sophia Stumpf, the people that work with us that make this podcast possible. Uh, 100%. Our, yeah, our listeners and, and, and everyone all around. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. So many, I mean, it is a valid point. Like the number of people that have come to help us with this podcast from our communities and the med school, the school of public health, the school of management are too numerous to count, but they are no less important. Anyway, deep gratitude to you all. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, I'm going to recommend you reach out to us at health.veritas at yale.edu. But you can also find us on social media, including what used to be called Twitter. Yeah, I'm at a, I am always say this. <laughs> Every week it becomes harder and harder, know, but I'm still hanging in there just because of the community that I have is so great. Although but, I will uh, say our LinkedIn uh, followers are amazing. I mean, I feel much yeah. better about our LinkedIn uh, profile and followership and the comments that people leave have been really uh, very fulfilling. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, at X, I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-E-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E, aside from Twitter. And our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the Healthcare Track, founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information or check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management, Yale School of Public Health. I want to say I am now a part of the Yale School of Management. With you are. Uh, congratulations. This, it's not a small thing. I thought about mentioning it. I'm happy you did. Uh, there are very, very few people at this university with a dual appointment or the joint appointment at the School of, of Management, uh, and you are among the rare few. So, yeah, And I'm happy to, to join you as being someone Thank at you. the Yale School of Medicine, the Yale School of Public Health, and the Yale School yes, of Management. I'm, I'm thrilled by that. And uh, as I I've said, uh, you know, we're so grateful to Inez and Sophia and to Miranda. And we hope that they have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.